I'm thinking about there's kind of a hierarchy of mindset, um, which runs from at the lowest level victim and then um, pessimist and then optimist and then realist and kind of the top level are competitors. And that's really unusual. And competitors see challenge as an opportunity. And I think that the real leaders in this town and at the helms of these restaurants are these competitors, you know, and maybe they're, you know, not always competitors. I mean, that's, you know, really elevated, but I think that that's kind of the backbone of this. These are people who are determined and passionate uh, and are just not going to give up. This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Where right now, Court, you can still order your Hanukkah meal kit until Saturday the 4th. Uh, and then after that, of course, you can stock up for your Christmas holiday or whatever holiday you celebrate um, for the rest of the month. It's also a great idea for gifts, right? Oh, it's a great place to go for gifts. If you haven't wandered around your local Zupan's markets, uh, whether it's, you know, for a, a housewarming gift that uh, you, you're going to be going to and you need to, I don't know, if you want to bring a, a, a bouquet of flowers, they've got that, obviously, with a great floral apartment. But even think my wife was looking at this really cool, it was like a gigantic uh, hot chocolate mug pitcher, Chris, that uh, we almost walked out of the... Uh, the Lake Oswego location with over the weekend because just this cute, cute little thing that she would sit out on the counter and possibly put hot chocolate in. Well, I'll also say too that their Christmas, their their little Christmas accessories and and gifts and the, the not necessarily gifts but things that you'd put around your house yeah. that look like Santa Claus and reindeer. There's a lot of those at Zupans and they they have real tasteful. Um, design choices and so they do um, it's and a good idea if you're at a loss great idea to walk through Zupans and just see what they have for a gift and they're very unique because you're, you're not going to find those anywhere else that's what I love about it is the stuff oftentimes the stuff you find at Zupans you, you can't really find anywhere else which just makes it that much better exactly and you can grab lunch while you're there oh yeah so there you go three locations West Burnside McAdam and also Lake Oswego, but more importantly, sign up for the newsfeed we're court. Zupans.com. All right, here it is. Time once again. It's Portland's Food Scene Podcast. It's right at the fork with your host, Chris Angelus from Portland Food Adventures. And I'm Court Johnson from Portland Radio, kink.fm. Hello, Court. And how are things going in Portland now? They're good. You know, it's uh, we've had these this really strange... I don't know how it's been out on the coast, but here in Portland, it, the weather's been warmer than normal and to the point where like the inside of your house and the outside of your house are almost the same temperature. And that's not right. It should never be that way. So uh, cold weather, please come just even slightly. I'll take it just slightly cooler than it is right now. Oh, man. No one's going to. Everybody's going to remember you when that happens and, and say you brought I'm, it on. I'm not man. saying. 
I'm not saying I want it cold, Chris. I just want it cooler than it is right now. I mean, it was like 60 degrees over the weekend, which is just crazy for late November. 60 is perfect. I'll take it all day long. And I know it was kind of warm and sunny there when it was uh, just rainy and crappy out here at the coast. But I don't view it as crappy as long as it's not snowing. I don't care. Sure. That, so, that's, your, that's really your, your uh, measuring stick snow no snow if there's no snow you're happy right and i actually don't mind snow if it goes away the next day but it's sure. dealing with it over the long term so no i'm after moving here from the east coast i'm very glad to not have 19 20 storms a season that i have to deal with and of course i don't have kids that are dealing with school uh cancellations and all that anymore but i feel for people especially after this pandemic boy it made my my uh, snow cancellations on the East Coast look like a uh, mm. day at the beach. Oh yeah, <laughs> I just had this. Uh, I just had this realization, Chris, and I don't remember if it was the last episode or the one previous to it. But uh, you and I have become the two old men that just sit around and talk about the weather because we seem to talk about the weather a lot. Yeah, maybe we should stop. So what else yeah. is going on? What other rants do you have? Are you watching Kirby Enthusiasm? I, it's a great. I'm. I, I'm I'm only one episode into the new season of Curb, Curb Your Enthusiasm, and I love it. I, cher- I cherish it. So I'm, I've got to sit down and, and watch it with my wife because I, if I if I if I'm not careful, I'll start watching the entire you know what's whatever's available to me without her, and she'll get mad. Oh, it's well. Those are the, I can watch those twice because you always pick up something oh, yeah. the second time that you didn't see the first time. But I had my biggest laugh of a few years in the episode with Patton Oswald, And uh, I w- never really understood him, but man, he made me laugh so hard. And I think it's episode number three. I'm not mm. sure this year, but oh God. I look it forward was, to that. Yeah, that was a good one. And also, are you watching, you know, here's another one. I had to go and get the Apple Plus subscription to watch t- uh, Ted Lasso. And now here I am with the Disney Plus subscription mm. to watch the Beatles documentary. Are you watching that? It's on my to-do list. I started to watch. I may. I maybe made it ten minutes into it over the weekend, and then got dis- distracted with some uh, family that was, you know, in town. But uh, that's on my list of things to watch. I, I huge rev- uh, raves from what I'm seeing about people enjoying well, watching that. It's remarkable to have all that footage and to have it look so good, and to be there with, you know, the whole band and. Uh, and watch what happens. Also, I have to say the first episode, the first, there's three. The first was great, and then it got a little slow. You know, I fell asleep, and then and then it got very interesting at the end. And uh, I so just think, des- pardon me? I was going to say, what you're describing right there, Chris, is the stereotypical Peter Jackson movie, which he takes something, makes it a little too long, but still ends up being pretty great at the end. Right, right. No, but just... Just to be there with those guys and have it be so uh, raw, right? It's not some overproduced Beatles help movie. It right. is. It's just watching them and getting to see their relationships. And uh, you know, at one point I said, "Well, geez, they're getting along a lot better than I thought," and then that changed a little bit. So, um, and uh, yeah, really interesting to watch Yoko. Um, knitting while they're rehearsing for their show. I thought that was interesting. Isn't she, is she knitting in the bed? Because I, I know that at a certain point, I can't remember if it was this album or the, I think it was the Abbey Road album, where she they literally, John put a bed in the studio so she could, because she was bedridden. <laughs> I don't so know. she could be in the studio. I don't know okay. about that, but I did enjoy yeah. watching Paul sort of bitch about Yoko's presence. 
right uh, when John wasn't there but but he also realized he couldn't do anything about it so it was what it was but no it really really interesting to watch and it's not the weather so there you go there we go something something else to talk about here's something else we, we can talk about Chris if people follow Chris Angeles on Instagram uh, your handle is your is Portland food ADV right that's Correct. the handle uh, you get you get all sorts of uh, treats of of uh, young Kodak, uh, your dog running around the beach these days. But you've also been every now and then you will feed us kind of timeline pictures of past trips to different parts of the world that uh, Portland Food Adventures has taken people, which yeah, I, which I always enjoy. Good. I haven't done enough of that lately, but I, I always do it in September and October because on my Facebook timeline comes up the memories. And I had five, I believe five or six years in a row where we were traveling at that point in time. That's right. So I would just take some screenshots of former trips as a means to appreciate that and also talk, just start to tease a little bit of what we're doing next year, which is going back to Spain, Basque Country, with Javier and Jake El Canteras of Urdaneta. We've got a couple of spots left for trips in April and September, just a couple. Most people have stuck with this since our we had to cancel 2020 trips. Now we're scheduled for 2022, and I can't tell you how nice it is to be rebooking transportation and hotels and uh, restaurants at the same time. Javier and JL just came back from a month in Spain, just checking the lay of the land to make sure that all the things we have in store are still going to be as fun as possible, and they will. So there's that. You can check that out at PortlandFoodAdventures.com. And then, of course, our trip to Sicily with Austria Ensign, and uh, it's to Western Sicily, and that is gonna be a real treat. And um, we've got some room there um, to Palermo, Agrigento, this beautiful little village on top of a mountain called Erice. Um, it's gonna be really special. We're visiting salt mines, wineries, um, and some of the best food you'll ever have. So that's there, and if anybody wants to call me to discuss it, they're welcome to, and they can find that contact information. Also, where? PortlandFoodAdventures.com Just to change it up and segue into this episode. There you so, go. This episode of Right at the Fork is a really special one. It's actually, I found someone whose passion for the food scene sort of was built from the same seed that I had when I started what we were just talking about, Portland Food Adventures. Well, Tasia Bernie started uh, in, the, in the past year a website called Feeder PDX. And I saw it when she first started talking about it when it was a uh, spreadsheet. But I thought very helpful website in this time and era when we don't know what's open, when it's open, whether they're open inside, outside, takeout, dine-in, and hours. And so she started to put together this, just because she loves the food scene, and we talk about how she's going to possibly monetize it. But this really cool just website you can visit to check out restaurants and see what they're doing and what they're requiring for um, for dining, for instance, if you need a vaccine, uh, a card uh, proving you've, you're vaccinated to even go into the restaurant, 
I personally like visiting those restaurants because I kind of know it's going to be a little safer and that there are a lot of people there who care. Sure, yeah. So uh, this interview with Tasia talks uh, about how she started Feeder uh, and some of her feelings about the food scene. I think she's a, she's a, a great writer. And so her ability to articulate and come up with um, and encapsulate some of the issues around dining is great. She's also got some superior food recommendations from her recent visits in Portland. So those are, are great to hear. And, uh, and we talk a lot about the food scene and the fact that I guess you and I should address this. This is two days after that we're recording this two days after uh, Paley's Place just closed its doors for the final time. And uh, I talk about that with Tassi and what that means. And I think we come to the conclusion that, of course, that's a sad thing. It's good for them. But, you know, she made me, in, in going through some of the names of the people that are still around, made me realize that they're, well, Kimberly and Vitaly Paley did wonders for our food world here and mentoring some of the best people that uh, run restaurants now and are working them. Uh, there are still quite a few who can do that and will do that. So we have, we still have a strong foundation in Portland. And so conversation with Tasia made me realize that. And uh, I think people will enjoy it. And I think the website, uh, Feeder PDX, is going to be very helpful for people going forward. Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Unsurpassed quality from the best meats and wines to local baked goods, fresh flowers, and an extensive craft beer selection. Step into Zupan's and be inspired for your next meal. Food-loving customers as well as local chefs know that Zupan's is the place to find the very best Northwest bounty in Portland. West Burnside, Southwest McAdam, and Lake Oswego. Local and family-owned for over 40 years. Zupan's Markets. Portland Food Adventures. Join our host, Chris Angeles, and his colleague, Austri Enzyme, next September for a wildly delicious adventure through Western Sicily. Palermo, Marsala, and lots in between. Book now to make sure you don't miss the best of Sicily. Since 2015, PFA has been taking Portlanders on incredible journeys with Portland chefs and artisans to Europe and beyond. Check out the trips tab at portlandfoodadventures.com for Sicily, Spain, and more. Or contact Chris through the website right now while you're listening to the podcast and by honorconnor.org. Honor Connor is a community based around those affected by suicide, a compassionate group of volunteers ready to help transform grief into empowerment and action that was formed by Scott and Lisa Johnson after their beloved son Connor tragically took his own life. Visit honorconnor.org. That's C O N N O R to see what resources are available to you and how you can help families in need. Let's identify some of the big things in your life. Let's start there and then we'll go, we'll go backwards to the smaller things that you pay attention to. Well, I'd say the really big things are, well, parenting. I have a nine-year-old daughter. Um, but connected to that, community. Uh, and really trying to understand and build trust 
because I think that that is something, especially because of the pandemic, um, we've lost as a culture. And so community is a big thing. The writing is a really big thing. Um, I've never loved anything more in my life than writing and um, connecting people. And that's really where the website came from. Um, because at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, it was once restaurants were allowed to open for indoor dining, it was very difficult to find any kind of list, especially an accurate list, of who was open for indoor dining. I, the, the way we connected was I had seen you over the years, but then I saw one day you put out this, I have this website called Feeder PDX, and it, to me, it answered, it, 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 it took care of a lot of questions in the Portland food world. Because I was always getting, I, even just getting the questions I normally got over the last 10 years, where should I go for this? And my first response was, I have no idea who's open and who's doing what, so I can't really give you a good answer. And there was Feeder PDX, where, where you could see who's got indoor dining, who's got outdoor dining. And now you can see what, you know, whether vaccinations are required to dine there. And that's mm -hmm. all a good thing before you decide where you're going to go out to eat, what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. And you can search by neighborhood or by cuisine, whether they have takeout, whether they're doing cocktails to go and slowly I am inputting business hours. Uh, and I think we're going to start with a breakfast, lunch, dinner kind of checkbox model uh, yeah, to see who's open for what. Because nowadays those are changing. Again, just as consumers need that information, it's not an easy task to update all of this. And no, and I'm doing it by myself. I know, you're doing <laughs> it by yourself. And I don't know if you've figured out how to monetize this or, I have not yet. Okay. I have not yet figured out how to monetize this. And honestly, at very first, when I was first putting the database together, and in its earliest incarnation, it was just a spreadsheet. Um, and I had no idea how to make a spreadsheet. And so I talked to uh, my good friend, Justin Seamer, who used to be in finance and begged him to make a spreadsheet for me. I really should know how to do this by now, especially with my obsession with organization. Uh, but he built that for me, and then I got some help from other friends getting it online. Um, whew, but it was really just, I mean, it was about 200 restaurants to begin with, and I called pretty much every single one of them. I had a little help from a couple friends right at the end. Uh, and it was, I started this in April, and so we had a couple of, big closures and then reopenings just kind of back to back. And so then it was a lot more phone calls and a lot more things to fix. And since it was still just a spreadsheet online, I thought, you know, there's really no way to monetize this yet. It's ugly. And, you know, there's, it's hard to work with. And so this whole time, I've just been kind of pushing it out and pushing it out, trying to get funding for it. And until I had it really to the point where it worked. And I found a wonderful web developer uh, to build it out for me. And um, Bob Smith drew our logo, which is which I love. It's a fat python. Um, and once we really got that website up, that's when I started to think, okay, now it would be very nice to, you know, have some sponsors um, and do some advertising. Because 
there was no way that I was ever going to charge restaurants for this, which was one of the early ideas from someone else. Well, of course not. You know, the one thing that restaurants don't want to spend money on is marketing and advertising. And also the reason I created this website to begin with was to really give back to restaurants and really try to help keep them afloat because... I think, I mean, I hold restaurants in such great esteem as being kind of arbiters of society and creating important connections, especially neighborhood restaurants. I mean, you can really develop relationships there. And I think we really need that right now. I think it's very essential. I mean, I was thinking about this. The first and most essential thing that we experience in this life is being fed by someone else. And... That really, I mean, then that has always carried through for me. And so I wanted to help these restaurants and take care of them. So I couldn't monetize it that way. But yes, I'm still kind of waiting to figure that part out. Well, so right now it's a labor of love. And yeah. I think that's important, right? Because you've got to start with passion. And nothing's going to work if it's all for the money, I don't think. And, no. And, and so if your passion is connecting people, the other part of that equation, and I don't, uh, is that you never know what's going to happen, right? So who, who sure. you're going to connect with whom, who you're going to connect with yourself to mm-hmm. find different avenues to, I mean, I've done yes. that. This is the, you and I, one of the things that I realized when we first met was we have similar passions and started from the same place, connecting people and sharing experiences and, and respecting what chefs and restaurants do, the industry. Absolutely. Yeah. These people are so incredible what they do. And then you have to step back and think about what they've gone through during the pandemic. And of course, some are still standing and some said, all right, I just saw the worst that it can be. And I don't want to do this any longer. Sure. Absolutely. And it's, you know, I mean, I'm thinking about there's kind of a hierarchy of mindset, um, which runs from at the lowest level victim and then um, pessimist and then optimist and then realist and kind of the top level are competitors. And that's really unusual. And competitors see challenge as an opportunity. And I think that the real leaders in this town and at the helms of these restaurants are these competitors, you know, and maybe they're, you know, not always competitors. I mean, that's, you know, really elevated, but I think that that's kind of the backbone of this. These are people who are determined and passionate uh, and are just not going to give up. But I also think when you use the word competitors in this context, they're not Mm -hmm. necessarily competing against their neighbors. Oh, not They're definitely not. You know, and they, they want to prove well, something yes, to themselves. Mean, completely. I mean, competitors need competition. And it's not, it's not something negative. It's a case of, you know, a rising tide lifts all ships, right? When you're around other people who are working really hard and really passionate, it makes you better. It gives you something to strive for. It gives you, you know, it sets the bar. And so it's, it's not that they're competing against each other at all. I think that one of the... Thing that our things that our town really has going for it and really always has is collaboration. That, and how that was the first that, thing that struck me in this town was how everyone wanted to collaborate and support. 
I think that's important too. Mm -hmm. I agree, absolutely. And so that's been, and, and I think that we need that more than ever right now too, during the pandemic. So, I mean, just all of this isolation, while absolutely necessary to protect our health, and I you know, completely agree with that, um, but all of this social isolation has just, I mean, it's just torn us apart, you know? Um, and there's, you know, so much more rage and anger and, you know, the cult of the individual and, you know, fear has really influenced the way things are running. And I think that the way to reverse that is to connect. Yeah, I think it's necessary. But, you know, it's been in Portland, it's been particularly awful because it hasn't only been the pandemic. There have been other factors, social factors mm -hmm. taking play uh, that, that have been at play and then political factors on top of that. Uh, it's just been one layer of shit on top of the other. So uh, Absolutely. I agree with you. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I've been longing for is is connecting, is to hang out with people and and have that opportunity we're still kind of walk we're still kind of dipping our toe in to that because yes. you can't just all of a sudden get together with people at least we have vaccinations and boosters and we have restaurants that are requiring vaccinations and that helps to make it a little more comfortable for those of us who are vaccinated mm -hmm. and can step into a restaurant but, absolutely um, but yeah, you and you have you've documented all of that. How big a task is it to update all the restaurants in your database? <laughs> uh, it's huge, and so right now I think I have, and this feels like a small number to me because I, I know there are so many more restaurants. But I think I have three hundred and twenty restaurants in feeder at the moment, and I am just about this week going to have to make roughly 320 phone calls, probably somewhat fewer because not everyone is offering uh, outdoor dining. But as for coming into winter, I need to find out who's going to keep their outdoor dining open. And because I want that to be accurate. Um, and some places have already shut down their outdoor stuff. And there are definitely places that are expanding outdoor dining as well. And I mean, we also have now the threat of the new variant, Omicron. That's the first um, time I've heard it said. I've read about it, but first time I've heard it's it. It's funny because I've been I've been referring it as the Ortolan variant, variant, and it took like several days for anyone <laughs> to notice. So, um, but now with this, I mean, I expect more restrictions. It's interesting because I had heard kind of through the grapevine that it was possible that the mask mandate was going to be lifted in the state of Oregon around January first. And I don't know whether that's true. It was just, you know, a little gossip. I think it may have had to do with, you know, a statewide 80% rate. But then again, I haven't checked this. But now with the new variant, I do wonder whether we're going to go back into lockdown. And obviously, we've got a few weeks before we know. Um, and purely selfishly, on behalf of restaurants, I'm really hoping that we don't get any restrictions until after the first of the year so they can have, you know, a nice, fat, productive right. holiday season. Um, but, uh, you know, it's funny about, so right when I was looking for a web developer, so I'd say maybe 
May or June of this year, I had a, a phone conversation with a web consultant who I had accidentally mistaken for a web developer. And uh, she asked me questions which seemed completely irrelevant to me, one of which was, do you think this is still going to be relevant in six months, mm-hmm. the website? And I said to her, do you really think the pandemic's going to be over in six months? And furthermore, even if the pandemic is over in six months, do you really think that restaurants are going to be able to recover in six months and that everyone is going to go back to, you know, full 100% capacity indoor dining with no restrictions? And so, yes, there is a ton to update. Um, Each individual entry takes... I don't know, just a couple of minutes, usually sometimes up to five minutes, depending on how well people's websites are laid out and whether or not, what's that? That's that's helpful to help you avoid a lot of phone calls. Well, I still make the phone calls because most websites are not clearly updated. And I also want to talk to an actual human being to confirm. I mean, I want to actually get a real answer from someone who works there instead of just relying on Googling or the internet, because that's faulty. And I didn't start this to, you know, only, you know, to kind of phone it in. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And you're still going strong too. So did you say since April? So Mm -hmm. April of 2021? Yeah. Yeah. So I've been doing this for about, what's that? You've gotten a lot of accomplished in that in that period of time. Oh, yeah. Thank you. I did. I mean, I got the whole database, I think, put together. I think I made those first 200 phone calls in about the period of a week, um, which, I mean, I guess it was lucky that my regular business was a little bit slower and that I was working from home and that I was able to take breaks and make phone calls. But I've also tried to be really careful about when I make phone calls, especially because, you know, honestly, a lot of restaurants are closed Sunday, Monday, Tuesday anymore. And so, and I also don't want to call during service on Friday and Saturday. And so mm-hmm. I've got this very narrow window where I feel comfortable making the phone call, trying to stay on the phone for as short a period as possible just to get the basic information and then let them go. Because, you know, then again, I don't want to take up their time. So, yeah. Well, you can, get it, that, yeah, you can get that information pretty quickly. I would imagine yeah. that with some people, knowing myself, it's hard to have that short conversation, though. All of a sudden, you know, these are restaurants you know and love, and you want to find out what's going on, and that leads to a 15-minute conversation often. Sure, but, I, but honestly, I've really scrupulously avoided that. I have basically a 10-second script for when I make the phone call. And if I want to catch up, I go eat at the restaurant. Because that is, you know, ultimately the way to support and, you know, really have that interaction and connection. So being able to give something back and also get something to eat. Well, good. Well, that seems to be a good segue into um, since you've been out visiting restaurants and enjoying them. Have you Mm -hmm. had any? Let's talk about some particular experiences that are um, noteworthy that you may want to share with people because we've got some new, let's talk first of all about new restaurants that have opened since the pandemic. If you have that top of mind and, or, uh, some of the, some of our favorites that have been around for a long time that we want to revisit that may have changed a little bit. 
Absolutely. Uh, let me scroll down to the bottom while I'm looking at I this. Love the fact that you need to use a particular what website are you using there? <laughs> I actually I have I have my full database in front of me right oh, now as a spreadsheet, which lives always um, on my computer. So I mean, the, a couple of places uh, that have opened during the pandemic that I think are just phenomenal and. This really sort of solidifies my feeling about the importance of neighborhood restaurants. Um, are Lazy Susan, which is one of Earl's restaurants, um, and also well, let's um, be clear, Earl Ninsom, because yes, we can't assume that everybody yeah. knows. Who oh, I'm Earl so sorry, is. absolutely. So and Earl Ninsom yeah, of Paddy Longbon, Hot he's, Guy. He's a, he's a partner in it, but it's um, it's. Uh, the maces, Andrew, and oh, she makes the best cakes. Oh, I know who you're I'm talking about. I think of her name. Nora. 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 Right. Yes. My gosh, the dessert there is delicious, right? It is. So that's the old Country Cat space. Mm-hmm. And they did some redesign uh, on the interior. It's much more open now. And it is so warm and inviting inside. The service is fantastic the food is delicious um and i mean i had a wonderful meal there and i just i mean these are restaurants that i wish i could drag into my neighborhood and uh, i live downtown so you know that'll tell you something i wish i could drag a whole bunch of business back downtown i think it would help immensely that's easy for you to say i'm in manzanita man so every single place i wish i could drag out here oh well for sure well we used to have neighborhood restaurants downtown but you know business has largely left downtown and a lot of these places have not been able to reopen it'll be back they will i mean i know that a lot of this has to do with staffing shortage and really prioritizing uh, their other projects, right? And of course, I'm thinking in particular of Bistro Agnes, which used to be my neighborhood spot. But mm-hmm. Greg and Gabby are now very busy at Ox, so which is well, good. good that they have Ox to be busy at. So good. Yeah, that absolutely. Good. Good and thing. the and what's the menu look like at Lazy Susan? Like, do you, can you share a dish, a particular dish that you uh, loved? I believe that. So I think it was cabbage in a chicken fat vinaigrette which was one of the most delicious things i've eaten as far as vegetable matter goes they had great skewers i mean everything was wonderful i always like to see really creative vegetables as well um uh they had a good they had some good cold bar options it's been a few weeks a couple of months i think since i've been there so i don't know what's changed there but they also had of course um a peanut butter pie which is one of my favorite desserts. So just nice. absolutely delicious. And the other place that I was thinking of that has opened since um, during the pandemic or maybe just slightly before uh, is Campania, which is an Italian restaurant in over in Deacom. Uh, it's the old Grand Army Tavern space. And they're doing really comforting kind of East Coast Italian food. And again, ambiance is great. Service was phenomenal and food was just really delicious. They did uh, a house made mortadella with a radicchio salad and olive tapenade that I had the other night, which was just pitch perfect. Oh, that sounds good. You know, one of the things coming from the East Coast, 
it's very obvious we don't have a lot of that out here. Sure, absolutely. And I mean, and these are places, you know, I mean, especially that one that are really flying under the radar, uh, too, you know, I mean, and this is sort of, it's an issue with, you know, smaller places, neighborhood places, places that don't, that aren't spending their money on um, marketing, and also places that are not buying into the cool kids stuff, the trendy stuff. Um, they have a real identity and it may not be what's, you know, the hottest thing right now, but it's really good. And I have such, I take such issue with, you know, all of the trendy food and all of the influencer stuff. Um, I just think it's pretty negative in taking us in the wrong direction. Well, yeah, but it's what drove us to a pretty healthy food scene for a long while, you know, the next new shiny thing. And I've certainly used that term enough. But I wonder over the pandemic, I don't know. I don't know if there's any data. And we could certainly <laughs> talk to Brooke at Eater. How, mm -hmm. how, much influ how, how, how much influence influencers, quote unquote, influencers had during the pandemic? Because I don't necessarily think people were looking for the next new place to go out to eat for a long period of time. They were you know, I don't happy to know what they know and get by. And I think that that's largely true, too. I don't necessarily think that people really are looking for the next new thing. They want what's good, not what's new. And no one ever asks me, I mean, rarely, you know, what's, you know, the hot new thing at all. You know, they ask me what the best meal I've had is or where I go. And, you know, I mean, I think it's really... Yeah, I mean, I just, it's, there's this disconnect between, you know, some of the tactics of influencers and food media and media in general, which is really geared toward clickbait um, and all of that discussion of the next new thing and what's cool, you know, really creates that fear of missing out for people and the thought that maybe they don't belong if they're not, you know, getting on the bandwagon with these new places. And I don't think that's the right way to go. Um, but while we're talking about places that I absolutely love, I mean, not just new places uh, that have opened. Um, I love Magna, Carlo, Carlo Lamagna's Filipino restaurant. Um, uh -huh. He's doing... And he's doing pop-ups there. He's having pop-ups. He is, too. absolutely. I mean, he's just an incredibly generous and empathic and kind person. And I know that he's hosting Joel and Emily Stocks right now for their pop-ups in the winter. Previously, they were doing a dinner series out of the garage they built out at their house. But now that it's getting towards winter, walking food from inside their house where they're cooking out to the garage um, is... Uh, might be different. So, I mean, Carlo has offered them this space and I think that's just, I, I think that's lovely, you know? Um, and beyond that, I mean, there are just, you know, places that have, I mean, where the chefs are just, you know, phenomenal, like Arden, where Eric Van Clay is. Uh, it's always fun to eat his food. There's never a bad dish there. And honestly, Dame is wonderful. The food that Patrick McKee is making there is fantastic. It's the best pasta I've had in Portland. And I'm curious to go there now because I know he just took a trip to Italy. And 
He did. He was just in Italy for two weeks. He took his whole staff. Right. So they were probably quite Talk about, you know, leadership and community and, you know, really creating a tribe and really making people feel connected. So, yeah. Is he still, um, is it called Dame now or doesn't, what's the the name that he It's Dame. It's Dame. So he and Jane partner decided officially to become partners quite a while ago. So he dropped, Um, uh, I can't even remember the name of it was it was called Estes. Yes, so, so it's now yes. just Dame. So it's just Dame, and they're there um, Thursday through Sunday. And I know that they also have, or Dame also hosts a pop up called No Saints. I think it's Mondays and Tuesdays, um, which is pizza and among other things. Well, Patrick is uh, extremely talented, and I'll tell you what: there's no more beautiful place that you can find than going to Dame for a, a night out. Oh, right. Yes, absolutely. Um, but, you know, it's it's like my brain has been sort of washed of because I haven't been visiting a lot of places and thinking about them too much. So when you bring these up, it's like, oh, yes, I have to. I need to get there. I need to spend more time in Portland. Um, absolutely. And some of the same places over and over, which is good. I'm happy. I like it. I just want to make it it so, is. Uh, and we all have, you know, yeah. the interesting thing about the food world now is, and, and I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but we'll find out in a second, um, is these restaurants have really had a tough time and they need to recoup. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, the, a lot of consumers have had a tough time too. So looking at new menus with new prices and making sure you tip enough because now we have to be a little more aware of that factor. Mm-hmm. You know, for a long time, I was like, I'm tipping to pick up a box. This is tough. It's a tough yeah. concept, but we have to get used to it. At some point, though, there, ha- there we have to sit down and get service for that. That's the way I look at it. Um, you know, restaurants have to return to that. But... My question is, how do you feel about the balance between restaurants being sustainable and being able to make a profit and pay their people well? There are all these factors. And then consumers aren't really there to pick up all the slack on that issue and, and sure. pay more than they were I mean, before. That makes perfect sense. However, they're going to have to pay more. I mean, between the staffing shortages and the supply chain issues... And everything that the restaurants have been through, I mean, their costs have gone up because they need to pay their employees more. And maybe it's more difficult to get particular ingredients or, for that matter, to-go boxes, which is one of those shortages that's uh, really concerning, especially when restaurants are only doing a to-go model, right? Right. Well, that's what... Exactly. And I mean, I do expect that we will be paying some more. But, you know, I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing. And, you know. hmm? So let me ask you. So I'm wondering Hmm? as you're talking and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I just want to throw the inject this in there. I'm wondering if so for years, a lot of chefs and people not pointing at any particular restaurant would say we have way mm-hmm. too many restaurants in Portland. So perhaps maybe a lot of those have closed now. 
So what may balance out the fact that there are some people have less money to spend at restaurants, there'll be fewer restaurants to spread the consumer dollars out at, and that may that may help the the uh, the issue or the the uh, equation it may. a little and bit. And I mean, I, I think that also people need to understand that they were perhaps underpaying for things as well. And that you're not just paying, well, in some cases, you're just paying for the food. I mean, those are definitely your transactional relationships when it comes to a restaurant, you know, your fast casual or your takeout only. Um, but in, in not just fine dining, but neighborhood restaurants, um, uh, places where you can sit down, you're paying not just for the food, but also for the relationship. And, you know, for the hospitality and the service, which, you know, of course, brings me to another question. And I think that perhaps, I mean, I think this was something maybe we discussed, or maybe I heard you discussing it with someone else. But I do sort of wonder what's going to happen to the culture of bad service in Portland, that Portland was occasionally so famous for kind of a la the montage where, you know, you expected to be treated terribly. Um, I really expect that we're not going to be seeing that post-pandemic. Do you think those people all left the business? Those are the ones that are not around any longer and the ones that have stuck with it are passionate about uh, what they do? I think so, to a degree. I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> and I think that, you know, a lot of those people uh, decided to do something else or were incredibly burn, burn, burnt out um, and, you know, may have taken off. But I guess, you know, it remains to be seen. Yeah, no, I'm curious about that, too, because, you know, you I mentioned it before, I alluded to it, and you touched on it. Right. We're paying for the experience. And I got to the point where, listen, I love a lot of what so many people do, and I love food. I mm -hmm. like to eat just like everybody else. And, you know, that's like saying I right. like to have fun. You know, on the dating sites, I used to see that all the time. I like to have fun. Oh, really? Oh, that boy. puts you at the top of the list. But I like to, we all like to eat. However, what I learned I was missing more than anything was the experience of going to a restaurant and having that the give and take and even the give and take with servers and you know that experience out there it's not the same picking up it a box and going same. home and i'm much i'm much more willing to pay for that if i'm sitting down and having that experience i'm much happier mm -hmm. on that tip line than i am absolutely if I'm i completely agree you know so, and people are still welcome to cook at home you know i mean if you i mean there's nothing stopping you from getting groceries and preparing food, you know? And so when you go out and I mean, I'm passing over kind of the, the takeout issue because there are definitely problems, a lot of problems with, with this, but when you go to a sit down restaurant, you know, you're paying for the food, the ambiance, the hospitality. Um, and that has a huge amount of value. I think that's, that's, 90 percent mm -hmm. of it at least now and then it becomes and i've always thought this we have a high we have a pretty high bar in portland the food is mm -hmm. going to be pretty good across the board because if you're not it's there's sure. just too many other options and a place won't survive so that being said that to me leads to the services mm -hmm. key because 
I'm, you know, I kind of know where I'm going. I know if I'm going to Republica, oh, what yes. I'm getting. And I've made that decision beforehand, except for the first time you try it. I know if I'm going to ringside, what I'm getting there. But so the service is really what, what determines the experience, I think. And maybe I've, I've, you know, drilled this too, too far. But it's, um, as we come out of the pandemic, I think that's, that's key. And let's talk about, we don't necessarily need to talk about that, but let's talk about some of the other things that caused you to want to do this in the first place, theater, and also what your, um, you know, what your day job is too. That's of interest. So uh, let's take a break and come back with uh, Tasha Burney on Right at the Fork. All right, Chris, we are pausing here a moment to talk about one of our favorite places to eat here in Portland, Ringside Steakhouse. Yes, you know, and if you're at a loss for a Christmas gift, or even if you like savings yourself, and everybody does, uh, Ringside is back with their special offer on gift cards. So if you buy $500 in gift cards in any amount, so you could buy $500 gift cards, one. dollars gift card, you get a $100 bonus dining card. So if you plan on eating at ringside over the next year, buy that $500 card and get another hundred. And so you're literally getting an additional 20% value. You can do that as well at the $300 level and get a $50 bonus dining card. So that's like getting a free steak out of the deal. Uh, at ringside right so those bonus cards are available through the end of the year and also the actual bonus card that you get is valid from january to february 2022 so you need to use that in the first couple of months just a bonus card the gift card is good in perpetuity so if you're thinking about that for maybe holiday treats also think about this as a literal holiday treat the christmas prime rib dinner available for four people we're talking about the the great prime rib that you can get at uh, Ringside Steakhouse. Uh, this, of course, is pre-seasoned and raw. You cook it yourself, but the kit comes with everything you need. Horseradish, au jus, mashed potatoes, Brussels sprouts, uh, the table bread that I love so much. In fact, Chris, I know this might be controversial to say this about a steakhouse that has so many things going for it. But the the bread that I get, I will I will fight anybody for that stuff. I, I love it that much. Plus, they bring it to you nice and warm with butter, and it is. Oh yeah. And if you need more, you get more. It's great. So yeah, that comes with it, and you can warm that up with everything there. Go to the. I would mm-hmm. say tell everybody to go to the Ringside Steakhouse website at ringsidesteakhouse.com and just look at the visual of that prime rib dinner. For four, yeah. and uh, and then you're going to want to do it. Yeah, I and mean, I, sh- I should add that the, it also comes with that dessert, which is a caramel apple pie. So make the reservations for the Christmas meal kit at ringsidesteakhouse.com. You can also make reservations to go eat at Ringside Steakhouse there, or hop on the Open Table app and make those reservations today. All right, we're back with Tasia, and uh, thank you so much for joining us. I know you're busy. We talked about doing this last week, and... <laughs> the first thing you said was, I need to make a few hundred phone calls to update feedback. <laughs> yeah, right. Because the Absolutely. millions of people who listen to this are going to go to your website right now. They need to, <laughs> they need to have the accurate information. Absolutely. And I'm not done making those phone calls. I actually skipped doing it last week because I knew that restaurants were going to be 
extra busy because of the holiday because mm-hmm. last week was Thanksgiving and um, between family Thanksgivings being open different hours and then of course the beginning of this week and of course last Friday having to recover from being closed um, uh, that would be a lot of pressure and so I will make the phone calls this week they'll get done uh, and the website's still there so the website's still there just it quickly is. what are you taking your time away from to keep up with feeder PDX right now <laughs> right so my regular day job uh, as it were the thing that makes me money is I am a strength and conditioning coach and personal trainer as well as a nutritionist. And so I have, and I have been for almost 20 years uh, and I've been self-employed for the last almost 15, I think um, training clients, helping them with nutrition and uh, just, you know, optimizing health for them. So I've got interesting that you and I met at a coffee shop. We've been exchanging here and there. Mm-hmm. And not once have you ever said, Chris, I got some suggestions for you. And well, I don't do that. <laughs> I know. It's all for free advice. But but we just really never even went into that part of your life. We were talking, we've been talking mostly about food. So I, I find it interesting because nutrition is, listen, I know, I, I, I'm not an expert, but I've certainly had enough with some of the health issues I've had in my life. I've I've learned, you know, what good nutrition is all about. And uh, as far as, you know, working out, that's probably something I, I walk. I walk on a, on a beach with my dog. And, right. you know, I lost, I, I don't know if I mentioned to you, when I moved out to the coast and I knew this would happen, I thought it would happen. I've lost 50 pounds since I've lived here. That's great. And yeah. it's largely from not eating in restaurants. That's it's a combination <laughs> of two things. It's not yeah. having, it's not, I still eat in restaurants, but I'm only, mm-hmm. you know, pandemic aside, I'm only in Portland a couple of days a week, mm-hmm. max, instead of trying to figure out all seven days. And also, yeah, just having a wonderful dog and a fantastic beach to walk on and get out there every day. Absolutely. Um, I, activity. Even, I haven't been on a treadmill. I probably should, but that's not something in my, at my age, I realize I sustain, you know, I do it for a couple of months and then boom, I gotta, I gotta figure it out from there. Absolutely. I mean, everybody has to be ready and it's important to find something that works in the long term for everyone. And I think that that's kind of the nice balance between the two things that I'm working on between, you know, restaurants and also the working out and nutrition side of things. I mean, they're not mutually exclusive. Of course not. I love eating in restaurants. And there is a healthy and sustainable way to eat in restaurants, even regularly. You know, this is not a death sentence. You're not going to get gout because you go out, you know, seven days a week. Well, also, you're not going to TGI Fridays either. So the the food that you're getting at the restaurants we're talking about, if you take all mm-hmm. the, the, the few restaurants you just mentioned, that's generally going to be pretty healthy uh, in terms of uh, options that you have to put on a plate. Sure. And also understanding portion sizes is important. And this has sometimes been... Um, a frustration of mine with some tasting menus, uh, fairly rarely, is um, it's got to be a matter of trust what they're feeding you, right? So there are some tasting menus where they bring out absolutely so much food that 
no sane or reasonable person could manage to eat all of it. You make yourself sick eating these things. And I think that that's just really a failure. And I, I mean, and I hate to use this word. Well, actually, I don't because it sounds harsh, but I think I mean it. It's kind of a betrayal because when you go to a restaurant, you're putting yourself in their hands. And if they're feeding you this insane amount of food, you know, I mean, what are you supposed to do? People don't have great self-control. But on the other hand, you know, at any restaurant where you're ordering your own food yourself, being aware of what portion sizes are and how much you should actually be eating is really important. And you don't have to finish everything on your plate. There's always the next night or two nights later. I find that all the time. I really enjoy, I, I never used to do this, but I really enjoy sort of strategizing. All right, I don't need all of this. I can get a second meal out of this tomorrow night at home, which is sure. delicious. So, yeah. yeah, people fall into the scarcity mentality, though, you know, they do with all things. And gosh, even more so now with the pandemic, people consciously or not think, oh, my gosh, I'm never going to eat again. You know, there's some instinct in us that, you know, makes us hoard, right? Um, and so really fighting against that and realizing that, yeah, there's more you can afford to you know, put down the fork. Well, it's funny that it's you say that because it, it makes me think. When I, I've been doing Portland food adventures all these years, and I always say to chefs when we're arranging it, I'd rather people leave full than hungry. And sure. I think for a good ticketed dinner, which you know a lot of tasting menus are, that's kind of mm -hmm. important. The last thing you want is for someone to be thinking, I'm hungry at the end of this meal i remember so man i've had that experience too there was one very notable tasting menu where there was not enough food and very unfortunately as i was getting up to leave and i was sitting at the chef's counter uh, and i had said nothing i had just you know eaten my food um and was very polite about it but as i was getting up to leave one of the chefs who had not spoken to me one of the cooks uh, from over the counter said so you're gonna go get a pizza and it was just, I mean, what an insult, you know? Well, the fact that to they know knew that, that I had, the fact that they knew right, that. to know, to know, yeah, oh my gosh, I, right? It's just like, I, yeah. I remember so. going to a pop-up dinner a few years ago that shall re uh, remain nameless. But a bunch of us at the table who didn't even know each other were doing the exact same thing. Where do you guys want to go for pizza after this? Because... That's insane for a hundred forty dollar dinner that you're that you have to do that on top of it. So, right, that's just not. I fair. mention it because there's balance. You're talking about having too much. I'm saying, well, not enough. I'd ra I'd rather have more than enough and have gorged myself or decided to take some of it home than. Absolutely, leave. I agree. So, yes, and I am um, a good eater. Let us say, and so I always would like more, for sure. So. Uh, I agree with that. Yeah, well, well, anyway, I just, you made me think, and I thought, well, maybe I need to rethink this. But I'll tell you, not everybody's going to be interested in this, but one of the one of the important factors when you ask how I lost weight was I had a vet who suggested that in my former, my late dog's old age, I shared human food with him, which I never did. I just, that's not good. I don't want to beggar. But when I started doing that, when I lived out here, it was just him and me. And if I started mm -hmm. thinking during the meal, what do I have to leave for him? It made my meal finite. Now, I wasn't leaving him a ton of food, and I adjusted his diet. 
But I, I say that's a really interesting way to limit food intake, to have to strategize, what am I going to give to my dog that's still on the plate? Um, yes, that kind of mindfulness, I think, is really important. And you also bring up a good point, even though you're referring to animals, which also works. But the importance of sharing food is huge. You know, if you have enough to share, absolutely share. It does a great thing for our empathy and for mindset as well. And you don't need to finish everything either. I mean, there's a difference between being full and being fulfilled. Right. You don't have to be stuffed in order to be And saving. you know, as a nutritionist, one of the best, some of the best advice you can give anybody is to stop before you get full and just relax for five or 10 minutes. And then, then all of a sudden you realize, I don't need any more. I'm, I'm full. Yeah, it takes about 20 minutes for those cues for satiety to kick right. in. So It happens yes. to me when I'm eating right. at home and something comes up and I have to take a phone call or do something. Invariably, I'll go back and look at the plate and say, I'm done. I don't want any more. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, an inter it's an interesting feeling how we get you know, sucked into our Yeah, it's thought, an interesting right? mindset. And the other yeah. thing is that I think drives a lot of what – Portland is all about is that sharing of food. So I'd rather have, you know, Republica has a great concept because you go there Absolutely. and you order, you order half the, the vegetarian and one person orders a vegetarian and one person orders the other menu and you share them both. And, and you get twice as right, many dishes. It's wonderful. Things. So the whole right? thing is about experimenting and adventure. That's it is. what I think. Absolutely. So, um, I don't know. I, I know that's probably pretty prevalent in other markets, but I would imagine if you went to, I hate to keep picking out Oklahoma or Kansas, but if you went to those places, people aren't sharing food the way they are here. You know, that's, I mean, I don't know because I haven't had that experience, right? Um, but just as far as tribal psychology goes and kind of the fundamentals of building a strong tribe and strong community. The two big things are sharing your resources, especially food, and defending your tribe. And so the more we share food, I think the stronger we become, really. How do we so, and I think that actually, I mean, that does remind me of, no. sorry to cut you off, but I'm going to keep going. Uh, <laughs> um, that was really sort of one of the early sort of the impetus for feeder, which you asked earlier, um, and I didn't think of, was I had been writing short essays about food and relationship, about food and love, and uh, posting them online. And a lot of them were about, I mean, they were all about how we connect through meals. Uh, and it was really because of those essays that I really started thinking about how I could better serve the industry and what else I could share personally. So, I mean, the essays were one thing, but feeder seemed like, you know, a bigger and more mm, usable, pertinent, um, functional So where piece. do people find your essays? But, you know, um, I just finished writing, I just finished the collection of essays. So it's now going to be a book. Um, I am looking for an agent, uh, but I had originally been posting them online at the New York Times cooking community uh, during the pandemic. Um, 
and they became very popular uh, to the point that uh, when um, the New York Times actually disavowed itself, they got rid of, well, disassociated from the New York Times cooking community um, because of mm, some... Ah, oh, gosh. Well, there were some issues. Anyway, the new when the New York Times let it go, and they found new moderators. Um, I think that they really shifted their focus and did not want um, essays anymore. They just wanted straight to the recipe, uh, and That's so good. and so then they no longer uh, were posting uh, my work, which was disappointing because I was getting a lot of interest and a lot of traction. Um, and people really liked the stories and I loved writing them. I loved being able to share them, but it also, you know, it allowed me, it made me realize that there was enough interest and engagement that I could actually develop this into a book. And so that is what I've done. Do you have enough, do you have enough material for a book now? Oh, I, yeah, it's, I have, have, oh yeah, absolutely. So, yep. Uh, it was last month that I finally printed out the whole manuscript and I, took off for a weekend down to hot springs in California. That's way off the beaten path um, on a big nature preserve kind of 40 minutes away from wireless or any kind of cell service to just sit down and start editing. And yeah, I got a lot of material and I've got some work ahead of me to get through this draft, but it's there. So it's not possible to find any of it in an archive? New York Times just obliterated it? or uh, they, So the New York Times cooking community was actually originally through Facebook. I think I still have some of my essays up um, on, uh, I have a writer page on Facebook. It's just Tasia Celeste Bernie. Um, there are a few very short essays, I think, that I left up there. So All right. Yeah. Well, I will invite you. We can post them on uh, one, of my, one of my platforms one, one way or the other. I would I would be happy to. I've got a few that um, are, I wrote recently that are pretty fun. So oh, good, yeah. Good. And you know, I used to do some food writing, but sort of stopped. So um, I'm doing this instead. And I think I, I honestly think I was a better writer than I am a, a host of a podcast. But somehow this sustains, and I get to meet people. It's about connecting, right? It so. is about connecting. I do love that, and I've certainly you know. I've certainly met a lot of people in this town who I really wanted to meet through feeder and also through the essays, you know, um, and that's been just really lovely to develop, you know, those friendships and to be able to talk to those people who I'd admired in the past. So it's, it's incredible. The, the great people that you can meet around food and travel too. Yes. So, yeah. I mean, I wasn't even involved in this. Now I used to say ten years ago. Now it's twelve. <laughs> I wasn't even involved in this twelve years ago. And when I think of all the people that I've met, but the food people are really interesting. Not only the consumers, but chefs and all the people who work in the industry. There's a there's a lot. It's a it's a really rich thing. I think it is. It is. And I think about. I kind of try to figure out why that is. And why I am attracted to this industry in particular. I mean, of course, I love to eat. Um, but there is so much passion and interest in process and really honing of craft uh, and leadership within that community. And I mean, just, you know, just like this excellent kind of insanity, right, that drives these people to stay in this business, which I 
really love, you know. Um, but it yeah, is a very more now than ever. Anybody? Oh yeah, it. absolutely. Yeah, and it's great. I love seeing this, you know, because honestly, uh, my my path has not been linear, nor has it been a very normal path to get where I am in life. And I love seeing other people who have also really taken the road less traveled and, you know, fought for what they believe in and stayed true to their passions. It's inspiring. So um, where did you, so where, where were your earliest food memories? What, what established your love of food? Does it, how far back does it go? Oh, it goes, it goes back all the way to the beginning. Um, my parents both were co- both cooked. We ate at home together every night as a family until I moved up here to go to college. So for 18 years, every, every night we sat down at the dinner table together as a family. And I think that is incredibly important. And it's just heartbreaking to know that it happens less and less in families or that, you know, people are attached to their screens or eating different things or just not connecting that way. And so there was always connection over food. Were you dining out? Uh, did you dine out much or we, always at home? We did. We dined out some. I grew up in the Santa Cruz Mountains in the middle of a redwood forest. And we were a little ways outside of town. But we did. We, we did eat out a fair amount. And we were regulars which is something I think is hugely important as well, is becoming a reg- regular at, you know, your neighborhood places where they know what you ordered, they know what you like, they ask you how school was. One of my, one of my memories, um, I've got some good food memories from Santa Cruz. Honestly, you know, it's not exactly the food mecca that Portland is or was. But I mean, I remember we were regulars at an Italian restaurant in downtown Santa Cruz, or actually it might have been yeah, I was in downtown Santa Cruz. And I remember the day I started my period when I was in junior high school, you know, completely ashamed and unprepared. We went straight out to dinner. And the first thing my parents told our server, whose name was Anne, nice. who'd been serving us for years, was, Tasia started her period today. And it was just like, oh, my God, right? You know, and it's, you know, but I mean, at the same time, it was really sweet that... <laughs> There was this, such a level of vulnerability and closeness that it was just like family, you know. And I remember being a little kid at Pizza More, which was the pizza place near, you know, in Soquel, the town where I grew up, where they would let me come behind the counter. I remember the owner opening up the ice machine very slowly and telling me that, you know, you had to be quiet so you didn't disturb the Eskimos inside. And so, I mean, I always loved the behind the scenes stuff and kind of the closeness and the family of restaurants. And then of course, when I moved here and really got to start to eat and especially eat fine dining, I mean, that's when I was sold. When did you move here? What year? I moved here in 1998. Oh, so you've been around a while. Do you remember your first, um, holy shit, this is, this city is a little different than Santa Cruz? Oh, well, I mean, I've got, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, I remember going to Castagna and um, just being blown away and so pleased by the flavors and the presentation, the beauty of it, um, and just, you know, the integrity. And it just, gosh, it felt good, you know? to be immersed in this entire experience, which was unlike anything I'd done before that. So, Did you keep up with Castagna yeah. over the years with different chefs that were there trying the different Oh, yeah, absolutely, for Do sure. Do you have a favorite, yep. not to uh, 
Uh, I hate to ask that question because then I'm no, not I'm not going to answer that question. You know, it's been—I mean, it's been different over the years, and you know, I've always loved it, and I really do hope that they're able to reopen someday. Um, but you know, I mean, there were—I mean, there were a lot of those experiences where I was just, you know, blown away by um, by a meal or a particular food item. You know, just the kind of thing that. You know, makes you just stop, right? Like there are particular things I've eaten and, and not just fine dining either. You know, I mean, it, encountering a new flavor or a new preparation of something or an ingredient which is so shockingly fresh um, and simple that it just, you know, makes your eyes roll back. You know, it's, it's I mean, I live for that stuff. So. so can I put you on, I'm going to put you on the spot and you can tell me whether you want to be on the spot or not, we can we can work that out. But since it's this week and it's two days after Paley's Place closed its doors forever, mm-hmm. do you have any particular yeah. thoughts on not only the the food there and the experience, but the 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 impact that that has and the importance that has that Paley's Place Whoops. is closing its doors or has closed its doors in Portland? Sure. Um, well, first of all, I mean, I love their food, but beyond that, they were so important for lineage, for chefs in this town. So many people came out of there. I mean, I know we were just talking about Patrick. He was there for a decade, right? But then, you know, so many other people, you know, Benny and Scott Ketterman, who just sat on. And, you know, I mean, just dozens and dozens of people traveled through that kitchen. And that's just, it's, it's a testament to what I mean, what kind of people Vito and Kim are is that they really brought up the next generation of cooks. And, and also, uh, you know, front of the house people. Kimberly did an incredible job. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. And she's wonderful. Oh, my gosh. You know, she's just a delight. Um, and I feel I mean, I feel grateful that they were here for so long. But at the same time, they also deserve to be able to retire, you know, Um and but it is true, you know, we are losing that kind of I mean, it's not the first generation. I think that's a little myopic to think that, you know, um, that there was you know no dining before them. But, you know, the you know, the originals. Right. Or as we look at it kind of now, you know, I mean, Philippe Boulot is still over at the Mac cooking there and, you know, Higgins is still open Um but, you know, I mean, Wildwood is gone. I know everybody, you know, talks Zephyro, Genoa is gone. You know, I mean, I mean it, things, things are changing, certainly. Uh, but I don't think that it's the end of Portland dining. I think that there are plenty of places that are going to work really hard to keep the city um, alive and well-fed, you know. No, I, I agree with you. I think it's not the end, but it is... The it's kind of the it's I wouldn't say that Vito and Kimberly leaving uh, the Portland restaurant world uh, is in and of itself. Uh, to me, it's a big thing. It's, it's a big it's, thing. Uh, yeah, it's a big. Thing. However, it's also in conjunction with some others over the last two years uh, who have left, who may not have been here as long as they have. Like but Jose. Have, <laughs> like Jose, yeah. Jessa, mm-hmm. and. The Gorums and mm-hmm. David Machado. I mean, sure. And I don't even want to start a list because if I forget somebody, I'll feel terrible. Sure. But just the uh, Scott Dolich. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
you know, I, I don't know if he's still at Stone Soup, but, um, you know, there are a lot of folks that, that aren't doing what they were doing who made the scene. Jason French. Mm -hmm. Talk about someone who went through, you know, Vitaly's Kitchen. Sure. So yep. um, he's no longer uh, cooking. Um, it's, uh, it is. It's a changing of the guard. There's going to be uh, some new restaurants that in 15, 20 years, people are going to be speaking about in the same light, I suppose. Absolutely. And I'm eager to see. I mean, I have some ideas about, you know, who those people will be. But, you know, I'm eager to see it play out as well. So can you, I'll put you on the spot, who's going to be the next, I mean, there are already big things, like Earl Ninsom is, you know, one of the kingpins now in the Portland food world. The folks, I mentioned it before, but, you know, Republica was a great experience. Oh, my gosh. We noticed yes. that. And so that goes without saying. And those, those people opened right when the pandemic either right after or right, right before, I don't remember. And they're doing they, amazing food there. Right, and they yeah. figured it out, and they've got the the front of the house is great, so it's fantastic. So why did I? Why was I mentioning? Oh yeah, so you want to well, know who's going to stick around and who's going to be, you know, in it for the well, long. Well, how much? Who's, who's going to be the next Vitali? Well, you know, I can't actually. I I don't know that I can answer that, and I don't know that there will be. Right, a and next it's not Vitaly. fair, Vitali. To you say know, that I mean, nobody it, can fill his shoes. And granted. I don't work in a kitchen. And so I can't tell you. Um, I mean, I know some people who are definitely leaders and um, have really been excellent teachers uh, and helped kind of the next generation get out. Um, but I don't know whether their restaurants are going to stay open as long or in the same way, you know, um, and so, I mean, I can't, I, you know, I can't say for sure. You know, I'd hate to be wrong. So Yeah, no, we'll, we'll check back in 15 or 20 years sure. uh, to see how you did. But I, what I meant was in terms of uh, mentoring and, you know, the importance to a lot of people. So many people have stories about the Paleys and, and then others they met there, too. So, sure. uh, you know, I'm just curious as to I, I think about who that might be in the kitchen. You know, there are guys like Earl, but he's not in all the kitchens now. He's, he's a restaurateur. Yeah. He's a restaurateur. Sure. So. And I mean, I know that there, I mean, there have been kitchens where, you know, many people have traveled through, right? For example, you know, Castagna people, you know, you know, definitely moved through there and went on to other things. I know that Brian Spangler at Pizza Shoals was kind of, you know, his kitchen was home to a lot of pop-ups and helped a lot of people in this town get their start. Um, and, you know, I mean, certainly the same is true for Gabe Brecker at Le Pigeon. Um, has, you know, definitely um, made space for other people. I know it's also true of, you know, Kathy Wims and Nostrana. A lot of people went moved through that kitchen. So, um, but, you know, it, it just, you know, it remains to be seen. Oh, and of course, you know, I mean, Aaron Barnett at St. Jack, I think that he is an incredible leader and right. we shall not forget him. I he mean, I think, what's he that? Came to mind all, he came to mind also, I was going to mention him, but I'm so glad you mentioned Kathy um, and uh, <laughs> my memory, it's just terrible. Who else were you just talking about? Ka Kathy and... Um, Gabe. Uh, pardon me? Gabe Rucker. Yeah, Gabe. I can't believe I didn't mention him. I'm going to edit this part out. But 
um, thank you for, for bringing for them. For sure. Up. And I think that um, Bonnie and Israel at Kachka as well. I mean, I think that that is, um, I mean, not only a phenomenal restaurant, um, but it feels to me like a pretty strong culture there as well. So, of uh, you know, supportive people. And I just, I mean, you know, honestly, I, w- one of the things I love most is hearing about restaurants that have had the same front of house staff or the same people in the kitchen for years, right? Who have really cultivated that family. Those are those stories that I think are really fantastic. You know, I don't want to hear about, you know, the places where people are in and out really fast or, you know, there are allegations of abuse or, you know, whatever, that's fine. It'll burn itself out um, in a different way. But I think that really celebrating these, you know, the places where people have been around for such a long time and the restaurants have been around for a long time. I know you're a big ringside guy. I'm, you know, I bet it's true there too, you know. That 75 years pe- there. It's over 75. Absolutely. You know, people stay. And so finding places where people are really happy and learning and feel safe, that's unique. And I think those are the places that we really should be patronizing. I think I have to thank you because... Um, in the context of talking about how healthy the food world is going to be and the foundation will have, you know, mm-hmm. in, in kind of uh, in talking about the Paley's leaving, you pointed out that we're in pretty strong hands. There are the there are the Gabriel Ruckers and the Aaron Barnetts and there are the, the Dentons, a lot of people around who ha- are still there mm-hmm. to mentor and teach and keep the whole food scene moving forward. Sure. I mean, we've got incredible chefs in this town. We do. I mean, as far as I know, Sarah Pliner of Aviary is still in this town. I know that she was working with Philippe at um, the Mac. I'm not sure if she's still there. But I mean, people have not, you know, up and left. I mean, sometimes they do. You know, that's just kind of the nature of the thing. We've got a lot. We've had a lot of chefs over the year who have, you know, flamed hard burnout. And, you know, you never hear from them again. Uh, But a lot of those are egos, too. And, you know, we're better off without that. Well, when the dust settles, we're going to have a lot of great restaurants that were around before the pandemic. Some that have come come about since. However, the beautiful thing is a lot of restaurants now are going to be the 2.0 or 3.0 versions of themselves. So we've Mm -hmm. got kind of a fresh new dining scene to go experience and that's uh absolutely and so agreed that's exciting to me and people will have to go to feederpdx.com <laughs> i hope they will <laughs> to, to keep up with yes. that and i think i hope you have a uh, i'm not saying you have to do that but it would be pretty cool if if you shared with people some of the the menus too so so you can see those on websites of course but some of the new things that are going on at these restaurants are exciting so um absolutely and i mean that is something that i really hope for theater that uh, i'd like to develop as things go on um i'd like to add more content um and have you know not necessarily lists because, you know, we don't really need that. But, you know, just discussions of what's going on at particular restaurants. And I love the inside stuff. I like to hear from the restaurants and the chefs themselves, you know, what they're really excited about, what's new on their menus, what they're excited about eating, because I always like to know where chefs like to eat besides, you know, their own places, obviously. And so kind of developing that side of the content um, is very much the next step for feeder. 
once I squeeze tiny bit more time out of my and you will and that's schedule that it's one of the most exciting things is finding out where chefs hang out and where they eat because those are the best recommendations i've always felt about. oh absolutely completely you know and that's what's exciting to me and that's really where i'd like to see food media go is have it driven by the people in the restaurants by the chefs themselves instead of you know the outsiders and i know that that may be a lot to ask uh, but I think that there's probably a um, mindful and delicate way to work those relationships um, in order to get that done. Yeah, well, you need to come. I, it's so hard for me to just bite my tongue and not be self-promotional here. But we've been doing that at Portland Food Adventures for 12 years now. So sure. It's all about where the chefs go and hang out and where they like to eat. So. Absolutely. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's interesting how you and I both have, I think, a lot of the same perspectives. And it's I wish you well in building what you're building. And I also think it's going to go places you don't you can't even see yet. And I'm open to that. You know, that's what's exciting to me. You know, I mean, I, I love the challenge and I love the opportunity. So yeah, and you're a very likable person. So I think oh, because thanks. of that, <laughs> opportunities, opportunities will you'll find opportunities, and they're just going to come your way too. So I appreciate that. Thank you. That's and and speaking of opportunities, it was a really nice opportunity to spend an hour with you, an hour plus. So thank you so much. Well, thank coming. you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It was fun talking to you. You were such a sport. You asked for, you know, a little guidance as to what we were going to talk about. And uh, I didn't give you much. I just figured this would be a, an easy, pleasant conversation that would take its own direction along the way. So thank you. Yes, thank you. Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at rightatthefork.com. Right